Well, good morning. If you have been on vacation or traveling this summer or getting back into the school uh, kind of mindset, we are glad that you are here. If it's your first time tuning in, whether that's online or in the room, thank you and welcome. We're glad that you have made time to join us as well. Uh, if it is your first time, or maybe this is more important if this is your second Sunday, we don't always talk about depressing topics. So just pure forewarning, if you're like, man, this church just always talks about hard stuff. Yeah, yes, we do. We're not afraid of the hard stuff, but we don't just always sit there either. So if you're like, what is going on? So if you're like, what's he talking about? We're in the middle of a study on the book of Psalms where we're looking at different types of Psalms and what they teach us about what we can pray. And so week one, we talked about the Psalms of praise and how when we're on this mountaintop, right, and everything is good and everything is going great and life is the way we want it to be and we can just sing praises and everything is like, yes, every prayer we pray, God answers the way we want him to. He always answers, but he always answers the way we want him to and things are good. And then last week, Chase was here and he talked about the imprecatory Psalms. That's just a fancy word. I'm going to go back to it and say for, dear God, I'm ticked off. So it's when we're angry. So we pray down curses on our enemies and God, and you're like, wait, I can pray that? You can. But here's what I want you to understand. The Psalms are, tell us about our experience. God's not uh, beholden to answer our prayer requests. So the Psalms, you'll see these imprecatory Psalms where they pray like, and we're like, whoa, I can't imagine praying like that. You can, just know God does not have to answer your prayer the way you pray. So, and that's part of that. And so we're in this pit and we're angry at something, something's going on. And today we're right back here in this pit. And we're, uh, we're talking about Psalms of Lament. Now, before we dig into what that really means, you might remember as we kicked off the series, one of the questions I ask is, have you ever been spiritually dry? And that, that's great about have you ever been, but my question this morning is, did you walk into the room today and your spiritual gas tank is on E? The light's been on for a while. You've been ignoring it, thinking, oh, I can go just a little bit further. But spiritually, you're running on empty. The truth is, you can be on E, on both the peak and the pit. Everything can be going great and life can be fantastic and you can be empty because we believe that we've worked to earn all those things. Because we deserve them. Because it's because of our effort that God has given us those things. And we kind of remove him from the equation altogether. Or you can be in the pit and on empty, and you're on empty because you're angry because of the imprecatory, like we talked about in the imprecatory Psalms, or maybe you're on empty because life hasn't been what you thought it would be. And so you're sad, you're scared, and maybe you're losing hope. And I want to see what the Psalms have to teach us as we learn this idea of lament today. So if you've got your Bibles or your phones, go ahead, pull them out. We're going to be in Psalm 13 today. That'll be where we're at of the 150. We're looking at that. One of the things I want you to know as we dig into this is over a third of the Psalms, 50 of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. This is the biggest collection of any of the different varieties of Psalms that there are. And I think it has a lot to do with just being real about life and where things are. And so 
As we dig into the Psalms of Lament, I want to open by sharing a story. Now, I'm going to warn you, this is a long story, but I really tried to condense it down as much as I can. It's a story of a lady named Hannah Clark. Now, Hannah Clark is just a normal mom. She's a blogger. She doesn't, she's not a theologian. She's not somebody writing from all these places who's published a lot of books. She's a blogger and a mom, and she shares her story of lament from 2018 like this. As I walked into the consultant's office, two different people told me it was nothing to worry about. They were wrong as the consultant's words made clear. My son could be dead in half an hour, not more than a week. My third son, Wilford, was born three months prematurely. He was six weeks old and he was going to die. When you're in a trial, you come face to face with this question, do I believe what I say I believe? In the NICU in Belfast, Northern Ireland, the 10 sickest babies in the country are in one room. The room's dark because light would be too much for them. The alarms on their monitors are dinging, dinging, dinging all day and all night. Parents stumble about with unbrushed hair and unwashed, tear-stained faces. There's little you can do when your baby's dying inside an incubator. My husband, Joel, and I held Wilfred's hand. We sang to him. We'd both been singing the Psalms for as long as we could sing, nightly in family worship, weekly in church, and now in the hospital. I sang the Psalter's version of Psalm 22 often. It described my agony perfectly. All my bones are out of joint, like wax so feels my heart, it seems to have been melted there like my inmost part. It also had words of comfort. You took me from my mother's womb, and in safety I did rest. Upon you I've been cast, since I in birth did come to be. Since I came from my mother's womb, you have been a God to me. A few days after that meeting, the doctors decided surgery was an option for Wilfred, but they were clear. It was unlikely he'd survive, and even less likely it would be successful. We'd have to turn off his life support afterwards. Under the consent form, possible side effects, someone had written DEATH in all capital letters. We signed the form, and we sang on. Yea, though I walk in death's dark veil, yet will I fear none ill. There are three bedrooms for parents in the NICU. We were in one. The other couple with a very sick little boys were in the others. On Sunday, one of them died. On Monday, the other. And Wilford's surgery was scheduled for Tuesday. Wilford survived the operation and it was successful. We were overwhelmed with joy and after a grueling recovery period, he began to thrive. He was out of the incubator drinking from a bottle and the oxygen machine was switched off. We're hoping to take our healthy baby home very soon. Then God in his wisdom took all that away again. And Wilford's health deteriorated. One morning we woke up knowing he was fighting a cold. By the evening we were offered palliative care. I sat by Wilford's Wilford's cot that whole night holding his hand and singing Psalm 143. O Lord, my prayer hear and heed my pleading cry. In faithfulness give ear, in righteousness reply. Even as the Psalms petition God, it teaches me the pleader 
that he will faithfully listen and righteously reply. My heart's in me dismayed, dismayed, my spirit faint does grow. Yet I call to mind the memory of past days, your works of every kind, and muse upon your ways. That night I thought of all God's goodness to me and to Wilford. To you I stretched my hands. There I was helpless as a child, reaching to God for help. O Lord, soon answer me. When morning comes to me, your loving kindness show. My trust in you will be. My trust was in God. Would morning bring the good kindness of Wilfred living, or would it bring the kindness of God taking Wilfred to heaven? My husband and I decided against palliative care. As the night wore on, Wilfred became sicker, and the only option left was to ventilate him. It might be impossible, they said, and transfer him to another hospital. We left the room and sat in the hall, looking out the window over the darkened hospital car park. For the next hour, they tried to intubate him, and more and more doctors rushed into the room. By the end, there were 15 people working on him. The nurses were crying. Eventually, his consultant came out. Wilfred was on the ventilator, still alive, and the ambulance was waiting. Morning was breaking. She concludes, the Psalms remind me of truth my mind knew, but my heart couldn't always comprehend. Singing them disciplined me to continue worshiping God, even when I felt like doing nothing but screaming in distress. Our hope and our prayer as we walk through this series is that as we learn the depth of prayer, we begin to have tools at our disposal that help us combat the dryness and the emptiness that so often we feel. The Psalms provide comfort in some of our darkest places. They invite us to ask tough questions. And maybe you walked in here today, and that's exactly where you are. You're in the pit. Maybe the hopes and dreams you had for life, your kids or a close friend, are never going to be realized. Maybe you're grieving a time of loss that feels like it will never end. Maybe you're wrestling with constant anxiety or depression and you wonder, will I ever be okay? It's in these moments that the Psalms invite us in to have an honest conversation with God. And I want to pause for a moment because some of us might be like, I'm glad you're talking about this, but this is not me. Please don't check out. Because what the gospel calls us to and what scripture calls us to is to walk alongside those who are in the pit. And so even when we're on the mountain and everything is great and life is wonderful, we get the privilege and the opportunity to step into somebody else's hurt, to walk alongside them, to love them, and to help them trust and hope in ways that maybe they can't on their own strength in that moment. And church, if I'm honest, I don't think the church in America is great at this. We love to focus on the celebration. We love to celebrate the victories. We love church to be a fun place. We love our programs that make everybody feel like, yeah, life is going great. 
And there's nothing wrong with any of that. But what happens when life's not going great? And I think in the midst of a community of faith, we have to make space to bear one another's burdens, to learn to lament, and to be honest with each other. You see, Hannah says it's in these honest moments that we have to bravely ask the question, do I believe what I say I believe? Moments like these force us to pause. Because when you're here, it's real easy to just focus on what's right around you. But we lift our eyes up. And we realize there's something more there for us. Now I want to pause real quick and explain. Lament is not complaining. Right? There is a difference between lamenting and complaining. And the Bible gives us a clear picture. If you are not familiar with the Bible story, in Exodus, God takes his people, the Israelites, and leads them out of slavery in Exodus. They cross the Red Sea. There's a pillar of cloud and light that's leading them by day. There's a pillar of fire that leads them by night. And they get out into the wilderness, and they begin to do what? Those of you who know the story, complain. They're whiny. They're a little hungry right? God, we're hungry. We don't have anything to drink. And what's their next statement? Why did you bring us out here to die? I'm sorry, hold on. I I don't want to pick on the Israelites because we are all the Israelites, right? We've all been there. Like we've all had that like hangry moment where everything is way bigger than it actually is. And we're like, what are we doing here? But they just walked across a riverbed that was full of water 30 seconds before they walked across it and it was dry. And they're like, God, we want to go back to Egypt, back to slavery, because we had meat to eat. Seriously? You're a free people. You're a little hungry, and you want to go be a slave again? That's complaining. They are accusing God of not caring, of not being there, and of leading them to death. That's a complaint. A lament, as we're going to see today, and as we look at the Psalms, is a cry out to God from a place of distress that asks God to be who God promised to be. See, David doesn't look at God and be like, why did you take me to this cave running from Saul so I would die? He cries out to God from that cave and says, God, show up again and be faithful the way you promised to. He's clinging to God's character, to God's nature. It's not about his place It's about who God is in the midst of that place. And I know that's nuanced, but I think it actually matters. And as we understand what biblical lament is, it matters for us too. And so the bottom line of today's sermon, and often I say this, if you don't catch anything else, just catch this and then you can take a nap. I need you to stick with me today because I think this statement might make you uncomfortable, but we need to unpack it together. Lament is the tension between holding God accountable to his promise and hoping for his salvation. Lament is the tension between holding God accountable to his promise and hoping for his salvation. And some of you are like, I'm going to hold God accountable. Bear with me. We're going to unpack what that looks like. Because accountability is not a threat. It's not like we can threaten God. He's like, yeah, I'm not, not worried. But it, and it, he doesn't need our reminder, 
But as we cry out to God and ask him to be and do who he promised, we're also reminded of his character and his nature. And so as we look at that in Psalm 13, look for those cries that David makes. Oh Lord, how long will you forget me? Forever? How long will you look the other way? How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? How long will my enemies have the upper hand? Turn and answer me, O Lord my God. Restore the sparkle to my eye or I will die. Don't let my enemies gloat saying what if we have defeated him. Don't let them rejoice at my downfall. But I trust in your unfailing love. I will rejoice because you have rescued me. I will sing to the Lord because he is good to me. Chase made a fantastic point last week, and I want to make sure you didn't miss it. The Psalms teach us what we can pray. They teach us what we can pray. They don't have to be the exact words, but they give us a framework of what we can pray. Anybody ever prayed, turn and answer me, O Lord, with an exclamation point? In every translation. You can't be like, oh, he just picked that one because it's got everyone. David is demanding an answer from God. Now, you might be tempted to say, oh, this just sounds like a coping mechanism. This is just how you cope through hard times. I've got plenty of those. I don't need anything else. Let me challenge you with something. In our journeys of faith, if we don't learn how to lament, we will not experience the joy that God has for us. If we don't learn how to lament when life is down here in the pit, we'll never fully experience the joy up here. And most of us who have been following Jesus for any amount of time can say, yeah, I think that's true because I've learned some of the best lessons or the most important lessons I've ever learned when life was super hard. And it really made me appreciate this more. David says in Psalm 126, 5, those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Faith in the Psalms is shaped by suffering. And not just the suffering of the psalmists themselves, but the suffering of the community all around them. And so, how do we do this? How do we learn to lament the way the Bible teaches us to lament? I think first, we have to understand that biblical lament is addressed to God. It's addressed to a God that we have a relationship with. It's not a cry into the abyss to some unknown being or some unknown deity or just screaming in anger. For the Israelites, it's addressed to the God who created a covenant with them, who said, I want to be your God. Abraham, I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the seashores. For David, who writes the Psalms, this is the God who anointed him to be king of Israel. It's the God who walked with him in the caves as King Saul was trying to take his life. It's the God who will be there in the ups and downs of his life. It's a God he has a relationship with that he cries out, how long will you forget me? You can't forget someone you don't know. How long will you look the other way? 
It's to the God who loves him that he cries out, I trust in your unfailing love. I will sing to the Lord because I know he's good. You see, David is here, but his eyes are crying out to the God he knows. Lament starts when we cry out to a God who we know and who more importantly knows us. We cry our hearts out to a God who loves us. But we don't ever lower our expectations of that God. I think sometimes we go, oh, this is easy. We just lower our expectations. We just don't expect God to do what God said he would do. That's not what Hannah did in her prayers as she prayed in the hospital. It's not what David does in the Psalms, and it's not what Meshach, Shadrach, or Abednego do, or if you were discipled by talking vegetables as a small child, Rakshak and Benny, who refused to bow to the chocolate bunny in VeggieTales, right? Because King Nebuchadnezzar is going to throw them into the fiery furnace. And we go, oh, that's a funny VeggieTales story. It's a true story from the Old Testament. And as they are getting ready to walk into that furnace, they turn to the king and they say this. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. They're not like, well, it was a good run. Sorry, God, guess this is over. They looked at that king as he's getting ready to throw them into the furnace and said, God's going to protect us because that's who God is. But the next phrase is even more powerful. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Whether God protects us where God calls us home, we want you to know he knows us and we know him and we're not going to serve another God. Is that where we are in the pit? Are we willing to say, God, I believe you're going to show up in the midst of this hurt, in the midst of this pain. God, I believe you're going to show up. But even if you don't, I'm still going to serve you because I know you're good. I know you're faithful. I know you're loving. I don't know how long our struggles or trials will last. But I do know God will be faithful and true. One of my favorite Christian artists is Toby Mack. Probably my first concert I ever saw growing up. And his name is Toby McKeon, but he's been through quite a bit, and he writes most of the Christian pop music we listen to. He's not had an easy life. He lost a son to suicide. And one of his most recent songs says this. Sometimes it's days. Sometimes it's years. Some face a lifetime of falling tears. But he's in the darkness. He's in the cold. Just like the morning, he always shows. He's a God worthy of our love and trust and a God who wants a relationship with us. 
It's a God we know who we get to hold accountable because lament is the tension between holding that God accountable to his promise and hoping for his salvation. And the next thing we need to learn is that in the midst of that, we have to understand and be honest about reality. This might be one of the hardest things for us to do, but author Matthew Jacoby says this, profound joy is cultivated in places of suffering, but only when we embrace the reality of suffering. You see, we can lie to ourselves. We can lie to those around us about what's going on. And we're never going to get anywhere. But it's when we get honest. David's honest. God, I'm alone. God, there's nobody else here. My enemies are trying to kill me. How long are you going to leave me here, God? David finds a lot of company with other biblical uh, people as he cries out this prayer to God that I'm alone, that life's not easy. I think about the prophet Elijah. Maybe you know that story. He has taken on 800 false prophets, wins this battle where he mocks them because their God doesn't show up. And he's like, I'm sorry, he must be in the bathroom. Maybe he's taking a nap. You can wake him up. But he wins this battle. God shows up and is who God says he will be. And what does Elijah do? He tucks his cloak in his belt and he sprints back to King Ahab to tell him what happens in front of the chariot led by horses. So he's out running horses. And so one on 800, victorious. Horse race or on foot, victorious. The natural thing to do would be to have a pity party. And that's exactly what Elijah does as he gets back. 1 Kings 19.10, I've been very zealous for the Lord Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put their prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Elijah's victories lead him to lament, to think about his aloneness. But he cries out to God in honesty for that, and God shows up and helps him. It's not just Elijah, it's Jesus. Matthew 27, 6, 46. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What I want you to see in this is when you find yourself here, you're not alone. David knows what it feels like to be there. Elijah knew what it felt like to be there. Jesus went to that place to guarantee that we would never be alone. Because he went there on the cross, because he walked out of that tomb on Sunday alive, we can be in the pit and know that God is with us. But the question is, how do we respond? Do we circle up the wagons? Put on the happy face? Tell everybody it's going to be okay? Go through life, not letting anybody see what's really going on. I think the Psalms of Lament say we need to be honest. We need to be honest with our closest friends and our family members, and we need to be honest first with God about what's happening and where we are and how we feel. And we need to cry that out to him. When we feel empty, when that gaslight's been on for a long time, 
Maybe what we really need to do is just let God know. He already knows, but maybe as we say it, it begins to do something in us. That's what it happens for David. Because you get to this place and if you're like, wait, what happened between verse 4 and verse 5 of this psalm? I feel like something massive shifted here. It's because David understood that lament never loses hope. Listen to verses 5 and 6. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. David's eyes are clearly up. He's looking up to the God who he believes will show up again. He can look back to the God who's already shown up before. And he's crying out, God, I know. I know you are unfailing love. I know you are worthy of trust. I know you're going to show up again. I need you to do it now. I need to hope. Martin Luther said, hope despairs and yet despair hopes. I think this is the truest experience in our lives. Anybody else? First service, I felt like I was kind of alone. Nobody else was really with me here. But like everything is going great. You're on the mountaintop and you're just waiting for something bad to happen. Right? Anybody else been there? Right? You're like, it can't be this good for this long. There's no way it's going to stay good. Something's going to happen. Life's going to fall apart. And we don't even enjoy the mountaintop all the time. Because we're just waiting. Hope despairs. Martin Luther says, but despair in the pit hopes that God's going to show up. Hopes that God's going to do something. All throughout the Psalms, there's this repeated phrase, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. It's this idea that when we're in the pit, God is with us. God is comforting us. God is walking alongside of us. Hannah reminds us of that as we conclude her story. Our trials didn't end that morning. But neither did God's grace. In the two years since, we faced Wilfred's death many more times. And we haven't stopped singing. The Psalms give us words to sing in every situation. They show us how to trust God and praise him in joyful times and in depths of despair. Today, there's a happy three-year-old running around our house. Wilfred lives with mental and physical handicaps because of his long illness And he waits on another surgery, which again comes with a risk of death. Yet as I look back over all that's happened, I see nothing but goodness and mercy all my life, surely following me. It took three years. We don't know what the journey looked like for Hannah. She doesn't tell us that. She went from the pit to the mountaintop looking back down. And seeing God's faithfulness in delivering her and Wilfred from that situation. That's the hope we have. That God will show up. That God will do what God says he'll do. It's our ultimate hope that at the end of time, Jesus will come back. That's what we see in Revelation chapter 22. Look, I'm coming soon, Jesus says. Look, I'm coming soon. Look, I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. As followers of Christ, that's our ultimate hope. 
That God will be faithful and true to his word. He said he's coming back and he will. And when he does, he'll restore all that he's created. He'll restore the joy and peace and love perfectly in the world in which we live. But for now, we live in the tension between holding God accountable for his promises and hoping for his salvation. I don't know what each of our situations were as we walked into this room today. I don't know how long they'll last. Maybe as Toby Mac said, they'll last a lifetime. But we know they won't last eternally. All will be made right. And God is with us. He's bigger than our pain. And he has unfailing love and faithfulness for each and every one of us. Church, if we're going to be a place that honors Jesus, we have to learn to embrace lament. That means we have to walk into places that don't make us feel very comfortable. It means being honest about where we are. But it means walking alongside our friends and our family members, putting our arm around their shoulder and saying, I know you're in the thick of it right now. And you're not alone. I'm here with you. I don't have words to say. So I'm just going to sit. I'm going to love you the best I know how. And we have to learn to lament and cry out to God that he would show up on their behalf. Maybe the most tangible way we get to experience God's unfailing love and faithfulness is every time we come and celebrate communion. We're reminded as we come and we take the bread and the juice of the incredible sacrifice that God made to be in a relationship with us. If you walked in here today in the midst of that pit, unfulfilled desires, losing hope, angry, simply feeling all alone. I pray that as you come and you take that bread and you dip it in the grape juice, that you would again feel and experience God's love and his mercy and his forgiveness for you in this moment. And if you came in high on that mountain and everything's great, I pray that this time as we celebrate communion reminds you that he's the one who got you there. Not each of us. So in just a moment, we'll come and celebrate. I want you to know there's gluten-free bread available if you need that. Anyone who's here today, it doesn't matter if it's your first time, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, you are welcome to come and celebrate with us. We would love to have you join us as we celebrate this. The server will hand you the bread and you just dip in the grape juice. You can take it right there if you need to go back to your seat and sit and pray and talk to God. You do that. And if you need more prayer or you want somebody to pray for you or somebody to walk with you in that pit, there'll be prayer workers at this back doors here on the sides and they would love to pray with you this morning. As we prepare to come, would you join me in prayer?
Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your mercy and grace that we don't deserve. God, we thank you that you meet us in the midst of our hurt. You don't leave us there to figure our way out. You jump into the pit with us. And God, you walk alongside us. God, give us the courage to walk alongside those we know are hurting. To not leave them alone. God, give us courage to be honest with those who love us so that we can tell them what's really going on. God, I pray that our relationship with you enables us to cry out all that we are feeling. God, thank you for your grace and mercy on the cross. Thank you for Jesus and for his victory over death and for the fact that he walked out of that grave. And I pray as we come today and celebrate, we would be refreshed by you. We pray all this in Jesus' name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.